0: The Housing Monster by an anonymous construction worker Read by Spaghetti for Brains We may call such a monster the beast of property. It now rules the world, making
1: mankind miserable, and gains in cruelty and veracity with the progress of our so-called civilization. This monster we will, in the following,
2: characterize and recommend to extermination. Johann Most Forward. 5 a.m. Your alarm goes off. Your first thought is, I could call in sick today. 6 a.m.
0: You shake yourself back awake. Outside your car window, construction
1: workers in various degrees of consciousness are stumbling across deep backhoe tracks in
2: the mud. It's time to go to work. 3 p.m. You've been in the car for 45 minutes. The traffic is terrible.
0: A professionally neutral voice comes over the radio.
1: Was the coverage of the election fair? Does the media focus too much on
0: slips of the tongue and miss the bigger picture? We want to know what you have to say. You change the station. What I don't understand is why the rioters were attacking their own neighborhood. You turn the radio off. 3:30. Yellow afternoon light streams through the supermarket parking lot. At the edge, an old man
1: is sleeping on a piece of cardboard in a bus shelter. No one is sitting on the bench,
0: but it's thin and ribbed and impossible to lay down on. 3:45. In line at the checkout, you're staring at the ground and the contents of the basket of the woman in front of you.
1: She's buying frozen pizza canned soup, a bottle of vitamins, and a women's magazine whose cover reads, in big bold letters, How to Meet Mr. Wright." The only sound for several minutes is the electronic popping as
0: the cashier scans items, takes payment, and repeats. Thank you for shopping at. Have a nice day. 355. As you climb the stairs to your place, you realize how bad
2: your knees hurt. God, you need a beer. 4.30. You're taking a shower. You sneeze, and a mixture of
0: blood and dark, gray, grainy stuff comes out. What is that?
2: Cement dust? Wood chips? Insulation? 7 o'clock. You finish eating dinner. You think about
0: doing your laundry, but decide it can wait. You're tired. 1045. A door slams loud and wakes you up. One of your neighbors and his teenage daughter start screaming at each other. You hear them often enough, but you've never actually spoken to them. You stare out the window at the rain in front of a street light. For some reason,
1: all your problems seem terrible at the moment. Oh shit, and the electric bill is
0: due this week. You have to remember to pay that or there'll be late fees. Midnight. A neighborhood away, a house burns. The landlords neglected the place for years. The city has strong
1: controls on rent increases and protection against eviction. It's not clear if the fire was arson or faulty electrical wiring. What is clear is that the landlord will now be able to rebuild or renovate it and rent it out for
0: triple the price. A house is more than four walls and a roof. From its design and production to the way it's sold,
1: used, resold, and eventually demolished, it's crisscrossed by conflict. From the construction site to the neighborhood, impersonal economic forces and very personal conflicts grow out of
0: each other. Concrete, rebar, wood, and nails. Frustration, anger, resentment, and despair.
2: Individual tragedies reflect a larger social tragedy. Part 1. The Construction Site You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend.
0: Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You
2: dig. Blondie. From the good, the bad, and the ugly. CHAPTER 1 LIVING IN DEAD LABOR Political economy is not a science
1: of the relation of things to things, as was thought by vulgar economists, nor of people to things, as was asserted by the theory of marginal utility,
2: but of the relations of people to people in the process of production. Isaac Illich Rubin When we think of a house, we think of a physical structure
0: meant to protect us from the weather and give us some privacy. It can have
1: various characteristics. It can be a single-family suburban bungalow with a lawn and a garage, a dark apartment in the basement of a block of brick row houses, a room halfway up a reinforced concrete housing tower,
0: a trailer by the edge of town, a sprawling mansion by the beach with a tennis court and heated pool. As physical structures,
1: different kinds of houses are worth different amounts. The value of any one of them appears to be another characteristic of the house, just like whether or not it has a garage or working smoke detectors. On the basis of this value, they're interchangeable. One mansion by the beach might have the same value as 10 suburban
0: houses and 50 basement apartments. Value the thing they have in common, is not a measure of their usefulness. The fact
1: that a mansion, as a physical structure, is worth 50 times more money than a basement apartment is not because it provides 50 times more shelter, or 50 times more privacy, or because it has 25 working smoke detectors to the basement apartment's single smoke detector that works half the time. This is even more clear when a house is compared to other commodities, like a luxury car, or a box of pasta. A basement apartment might be worth half as much as a luxury car, and thousands of times what a box of pasta is worth. But it would be completely ridiculous to say that this is because a basement apartment provides half as much protection from the weather and privacy as a luxury car provides ability to get from place to place quickly and in style, or that people living in the basement apartment value the shelter their apartment provides several thousand times more than they value the ability of the pasta to be turned into a tasty dinner. If a mansion is worth ten times what a single-family bungalow is worth, it's because it takes ten times as much work to make one. If it takes a specific mix of construction workers six months to build the bungalow, it would take the same workers five years to build the mansion, or if the mansion needed to be built in six months, it would take ten times as many workers. The ratios in which different types of houses could be exchanged is based on the amount of labor time that's necessary to make them, where the skilled laborer's time is worth more than the unskilled laborer's. When a cider fixes plastic siding on the exterior walls of a bungalow, he's making a real change to the usefulness of a particular commodity. He's making the house waterproof and slightly better insulated. At the same time, he's adding value to the commodity. His work takes part in forming an average for the amount of work necessary to put siding on a bungalow in a particular society. It doesn't matter how much time and effort he puts into putting up the siding on this or that particular house. His work adds value to the house based on a socially necessary average amount of work time the task should take. If next year, A new, faster method for fixing plastic siding to houses becomes widespread. The value of all houses with plastic siding will fall, whether or not they were made using that method. There's a constant exchange of different kinds of commodities. Commodities are produced by separate, specialized enterprises. Houses and x-rays are created by completely different work processes and have completely different uses. Still. X-ray technicians need houses, and construction workers often need X-rays taken. Value appears as the thing that makes a social relation between them possible. It links the activity of separate commodity producers.
0: The products of their work can be exchanged for definite amounts of money, which can then be used to buy any other commodity.
1: Value attaches itself to useful things and these things become commodities and exchangeable. In this way, the work of the x-ray tech is made interchangeable with the work of the construction worker, not as the creation of a specific useful thing, but as a process of value creation. Things appear to have value because of the social relations between people producing different useful things. Value exists when... In order for useful things to get from the people who make them to the
0: people who need them, they have to pass through the intermediate step of being bought and sold, or bartered or otherwise exchanged. When the buyer looks at a house, he sees what it can be used for, a warm place
1: to sleep, to make food, to have a party. For the seller, the house is a blob of value waiting to be turned into money. He doesn't care about the heated pool and the outdoor barbecue, except as a hook to get someone to buy the house. Like any commodity seller, he's in it for the money. But simply buying and selling houses at their value doesn't make money. It just means that the value stored up in a house is turned into value stored up in money, which could then be traded for other commodities.
0: But the owner of a construction company is not just a commodity seller. He's a capitalist. In a capitalist society, everyone's activity is interchangeable and we're all equal
1: as people with commodities for sale. At the same time, most of us have nothing to sell but our ability to work. Everything that's necessary to
0: make useful things is owned and controlled by a class of capitalists. It's their private property. X-Ray Tech's
1: Can't take x rays without access to expensive x ray machines in the hospital, owned by the hospital's shareholders. Cement masons can't lay the foundations for houses without access to expensive concrete mixing trucks. Those of us who don't have property we can make money from are forced to sell our ability to work to a capitalist. We become wage workers. Our ability to work is like any other commodity. In that its value is based on the value of all the things that go into making it. We have to be paid enough to pay for all the food, clothes, rent, phone service, education and training, health care, gasoline, liquor, and sleeping pills we need to keep showing up every morning able to work. Our ability to work is not like other commodities, in that it creates new value. A box of nails and a pile of two by fours Come into a construction site with a value based on the amount of work necessary to make them and transport them to the site. They're the combined product of workers in a nail factory, a sawmill, a paper mill, miners, loggers, truckers, guys driving forklifts and warehouses and hundreds of other workers. The work of all these people is stored up in the box
0: of nails and pile of two-by-fours as value. Their labor already turned into things. Dead labor. As the wood and nails are used up and made into an interior wall of a house, they
1: transfer their value to the house. The value of the nail gun used to drive the nails transfers its value slowly to all the different walls on which it's used based on the average lifetime of nail guns. But an interior wall is worth more than a pile of wood and nails. And some wear and tear on a nail gun.
0: The difference is the work the framer did building the wall. Our ability to work is not used up like a raw material
1: or a machine, transferring its value directly to the product. Our living labor creates enough value to replace our wages and more. We're paid a wage and expected to work for a specific amount of time. As we build a wall, we use up bits of dead labor. We both transfer their value to the wall and at the same time add more value by doing work. Whether our wages are calculated hourly, daily, weekly or monthly, our living labor adds more value to the houses we build during that time than we're paid in wages. This surplus value belongs to the boss. A house is an expensive thing. So, usually, a capitalist with his money invested in house production has a contract with a buyer before he breaks ground. Say, for example, he gets a contract to build a mansion by the beach. He starts with money. Then he buys the commodities he needs to make the house. These are raw materials, like nails, wood, drywall, cement, pipes, copper wire. Machines and tools, like drills, ladders, Strings of temporary lighting, scaffolding, forklifts. And he hires an appropriate mix of construction workers. These are all brought together at the construction site and set in motion, making the beachside mansion. When finished, the product is a commodity worth more than the means of production and wages. He's then paid for the job, and his
0: capital is freed up to start again. This time, he has a bit more and can maybe take on a bigger contract. In
1: reality, a construction site is more often a bunch of overlapping production processes. One capitalist has the contract to build the house or houses, and acts as a general contractor. He hires some of the workers who will spend the most time on the construction site, such as the framers, the laborers, and maybe a few operating engineers to run the big machinery the electrical systems, the plumbing, the HVAC, the roofing and siding, the insulation and drywall, the painting, the finished carpentry, the tile and concrete work he leaves to specialized subcontractors. As far as the production process he's involved in is concerned, the products of the various subcontractors enter as raw materials to be built into the house, even if they haven't
0: been put together yet. The capital of the subcontractor moves in the same circuit. Say a Finnish carpentry company gets the
1: contract to install all the cabinets and decorative window sills and door frames in the mansion. The owner of the company starts with money. Then he buys the required raw materials, tools and machines, finished wood, plastic fasteners, glue, stepladders, nails, nail guns, etc. Hires the required workers, And puts them to work installing the cabinets and door and window frames. These are a commodity, which is sold to the general contractor. The money is more than his initial investment and can be reinvested to expand the company. The value of the business expands. Whether the finished commodity is a house or a part of a house, or even repairs or remodeling of a house, the process of capital accumulation is the same. By getting his money to flow through a production process in which surplus value is created, the capitalist
0: makes more money. His capital expands. But the owner of a construction company doesn't make any distinction between money
1: invested in living and dead labor. His profit is surplus value, but it doesn't look like surplus value. The fact that his profit comes from paying workers less than the value they create at work is hidden in the normal business of buying and selling commodities. He spends his money on everything needed to run his business, and when the job's done, he gets a return. The difference is his profit. By comparing his profit to the total capital he
0: invested, he gets a rate of profit for a specific period of time. Say, an HVAC contractor spends
1: $100,000 over the course of a year installing the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems in a residential high-rise. Say $80,000 of it was used to buy dead labor, fans, heaters and air conditioners of various sizes, sheets of galvanized steel, duct tape and insulation, saws, tin snips, extension cords, replacements for the wear and tear on the company van, etc and $20,000 to buy living labor, wages. Say the employees took half their time at work to add enough value to the HVAC systems they were assembling to pay their wages, and the rest of the time they added
0: surplus value. This would mean that the value of the HVAC system was $120,000. If the contractor
1: was paid $120,000, he would have an annual rate of profit 20%. of 20%. Quite good. If the general contractor only paid him $110,000, he would still make an annual profit of 10%, but the surplus value created by his employees would be divided equally between him
0: and the general contractor. But there's never only one contractor. Each separate enterprise in the same line of business
1: competes against the others on the open market. Buyers won't buy a product that doesn't work right, and they'll buy the cheapest one of the same quality. In this way, a market price is formed for installing all the HVAC systems in a residential high rise. This price can be pushed up if there are a lot of buildings to outfit and not that many HVAC contractors in the area, or it can be pushed down if a lot of contractors are competing for the contracts on a few buildings. When the price drops, it just means that more of the surplus value is going to the general contractor. When it rises, the HVAC contractor is keeping more of it. The prices are constantly being pushed up and down based on market conditions, but supply and demand
2: cannot explain the price. At the point where supply and demand are equal, they don't explain anything. The price
0: of an installed HVAC system like any commodity, moves around an equilibrium
1: price. That equilibrium price is the value of the capital invested in the dead labor, plus that invested in living labor, plus an average rate of profit for the industry. Contractors making significantly less than the average rate of profit will go out of business, and their contracts will go to those who are making more. This competition makes the different enterprises producing a similar product compare, and copy each other's internal organization and work processes. If one contractor starts using a new material to make ducts out of that is cheaper than galvanized steel, he'll lower his costs, make more profit than the average, and be able to sell his commodities cheaper. All the other contractors will have to start using the new material or go out of business. As they make the switch, his competitive advantage will disappear. But it's not just capital invested in the same industry that competes. From the point of view of value trying to expand itself, any business is as good as the next. All that matters is the rate of profit. If a decent-sized HVAC contractor sees that limousine companies or pasta manufacturers are making more profit for the same investment, he can sell his company and buy a fleet of limousines or a pasta factory. As more and more capital that was in the business of installing ventilation systems moves into the business of taxiing around celebrities and taking high school kids to the prom, the price of limousine service will fall and the price of HVAC systems will rise.
0: An average rate of profit is formed, weighted for how much capital is invested in different businesses.
1: Competition means that each individual enterprise doesn't keep the surplus value it squeezed out of its workers but will tend to make profit based on the average rate of profit in the market it operates in. If specific sectors continue to produce at a below average rate of profit, firms or even whole industries will see their investment evaporate and go out of business. In reality, there are all sorts of barriers to the movement of capital and profit rates are never fully equalized. If one company owns all the lumber processing plants in the area, it can drive up the price of 2x4s. It would then have a higher rate of profit because when construction companies paid its inflated prices, it would be capturing some of the surplus value created by their workers. Its domination of the entire market would be a barrier to the equalization of the rate of profit.
0: But monopolies are only the most extreme example of barriers to the movement of capital. Take a
1: contractor who's been running the same plumbing company for 40 years and employs a couple of his nephews. He knows that he could make a higher rate of profit if he sold it and invested his money in an upscale bar catering to yuppies in a gay neighborhood. But he doesn't. His prejudice against homosexuals or his religious conviction against the consumption of alcohol or just his attachment to the family business, is a barrier to the movement of his capital. Whether they're monopolies, trade tariffs, different tax structures, religious beliefs, different health and safety laws, or just individual attachments to a particular line of work or a particular neighborhood, the various barriers to the movement of capital
0: don't stop the market from functioning. They form the contours of the market. Still the wider the difference between the rates of profit the barriers are keeping apart the more pressure that is put
1: on those barriers the constant movement of capital back and forth between industries and regions tends to have a corrosive effect on anything that stands
0: in the way of equalizing of the rate of profit all this competition puts a lot of pressure on the owner of a construction company
1: his company's got to not just make a profit But a competitive profit. He's
0: got to grow or die. It's not easy being a capitalist. He's always worried about his profit rate. He's
1: always worried about whether his employees are wasting raw materials, or whether we're working hard enough, or whether we're abusing his machines and creating more than an average amount of wear and tear. If he wants to remain a business owner, he's got to push us
0: to work harder, faster longer, and for less money. He's got to be an asshole. Every day at work, at the
1: construction site, is a constant battle, as the boss tries to squeeze as much surplus value out of us as possible. When he can get us to start work a little earlier, leave a little later, or work a little harder and faster, he's raising the profit rate at our expense. When we take smoke breaks when we're supposed to be working when we throw away usable parts rather than walk down several floors to put them back by the gang box, when we steal tools or take extra long lunches, we're making our lives a little easier and at the same time cutting into the profit rate. We don't care about the company. Our interests are directly opposed to the bosses and to the whole process of capital accumulation in general. We have to sell our ability to work in order to buy the things we need to survive. The fact that some guys will bring in some homemade burritos to sell at lunch, or we'll sell some drugs on the side, or we'll steal copper pipes and wire from the site to sell for scrap, doesn't change the fact that we're dependent on selling our ability to work to a boss, dependent on a wage. Our time spent at work is not our own. It's that part of our lives that we just want to be over. In order to make a living, We're forced to give over a huge portion of our lives to the boss. We make jokes comparing work to prison. A new guy on a job will be asked, How much time have you done? Older guys who've been in the trades for years are called lifers. The guy who's given notice and is quitting next week is a short-timer. We complain about our boss and say we're going to quit and go work at a real company that treats its employees right. There's always stories about the good boss or the good company to work for, but somehow it's never our current one. Attitudes to the boss usually range from guarded indifference to white-hot hatred, depending on who he picks on and how much he tries to push us around. Every day, we can see our activity being turned into things as buildings rise out of the ground and are filled with wires, pipes, and ducts. But in the houses we build, we don't see protection from the weather and privacy we see a big, meaningless object that we're forced to work on and someone else makes money from. Single-family suburban bungalows, dark basement apartments, reinforced concrete housing towers, trailers, and beachside mansions are not just dead labor. They're capital. They're dead labor that needs to move and expand by squeezing living labor. Houses, as well as vans full of parts and tools, Sheets of steel, rolls of copper wire, backhoes and cement mixing trucks appear as capital only because of the relations between the people making them. They're owned and controlled by capitalists and worked on by wage workers without property we can make money from. The representative of dead labor controls living labor and forces us to work so that dead labor can expand. This
2: class relationship shapes everything else in a capitalist society.